Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today on Liberty and Leadership, I'm joined by Catherine Mangu Ward, Editor-in-Chief of Reason Magazine. Catherine was awarded a Robert Novak Fellowship in 2005 and was the 2021 winner of our Ken Tomlinson Award for Outstanding Journalism. We're going to discuss Catherine's work at Reason, the lessons she's learned as a Novak Fellow, and her views on AI, voting, and capitalism. Catherine, thanks for joining me today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. It is a delight to be here, Roger. Now, you edit uh, the leading libertarian magazine, Reason, and your slogan is Free Minds and Free Markets. Uh, I'd like to talk about that, but before we get into that, uh, tell me a little bit about your path into journalism. What, what led to you deciding you wanted to pursue a career as a journalist? You know, I think I was the last person to know that it was obvious that I should pursue a career in journalism. I had um, I was lucky enough to be involved um, when I was an undergraduate with um, the Yale Free Press, which was an alternative paper on Yale's campus funded by um, the Collegiate Network. Um, wow. And I just thought that was a good time. You know, it didn't really occur to me that this was a viable career path. Uh, I had internships at the uh, at U.S. News and World Report with John Leo and an internship at Reason. But still, it just seemed like fun. Uh, and then there was a point where I got to graduation and said, what should I do with my life? Um, at the time, I was a recovering objectivist. And so I had this idea that I should like go make widgets yeah. in the world because make that money. was what was important and moral to do. Or build a railroad. Build or a railroad, yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, and then I landed a job at uh, the Weekly Standard, may it rest in peace, and uh, and realized that maybe this journalism thing could work out after all. And it went from there. Yeah, well, uh, it's a great story as the representative of an organization that puts a lot of students in internships to see someone who was, went from intern to editor-in-chief in that short period of time is wonderful. I mean, I don't know if it's a short period of time. <laughs> well, it's uh, 23 years now <laughs> since I was an intern at Reason. Yes, but uh, that's an uh, accelerated path. <laughs> uh, now, when you were uh, early in your career, I don't know if you were at Reason yet, when you, got, yeah, you, when you got the Novak Fellow, you were at Reason, weren't you? No, I actually, oh. um, the Novak Fellowship was a really important bridge for me because I had left the Weekly Standard and I had taken a job working um, for John Tierney on the op-ed oh, page wow. of the New York Times. But um, I think my designation there was clerk. It was not a writing role. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was really struggling with balancing a really fun job as a researcher and assistant for a columnist that I really admired with the desire to be sure that I was still producing under my own byline. And the Novak Fellowship really came in clutch to kind of keep me on track and focused on that. Um, and then I did, I did go to reason shortly after that. Yeah. Well, wow. You had John Leo in your career. You had John Tierney, all the good Johns, really great so many people. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, now your Novak project, I love the title of it, how 25 environmentalists set out to save the planet and wound up making everyone's lives just a little bit worse. Uh, you completed that project, I take it? Or I am not did? sure that in the end I found the full 25, but uh, <laughs> I did I did really enjoy the project, partially because I think 
so often it's the case that the the villain in you know libertarian stories is just the faceless bureaucracy, you know, the government writ large. You name names. So, so I, I was looking to I was looking to find the actual um, the actual characters responsible, and of course there were some recurring characters in this project, including Ralph Nader and some folks outside of government, but. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a really good opportunity to hone my reporting chops, um, which had previously been more focused on stuff that was of concern to the Weekly Standard. Which which uh, is really one of the main purposes of the Novak Fellowship is to try to encourage young people to do reporting for those stories, uh, rather than just want to you know offer their opinion of the world's top issues. You know, go out and. Give us something, tell us something we didn't know before, find some information that could be valuable. Well, and I was yeah. lucky enough uh, just last week to help select um, the new batch. You of were. Novak thank thank you for serving as our uh, judge this year. Uh, we had a great applicant pool, I'm told. And, and while we have not yet released the names of who's been selected, I like it. You're like, Catherine, perhaps. don't give it away. <laughs> well, this will, by the time this airs, it'll probably uh, be announced, but I think we're still trying to track down everyone to let the winners know they won and the ones who didn't get it this year to know they should reapply next year. But what was that experience like? You brought in a dozen or so people to talk about their projects. It's great. It was really encouraging, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I do a lot of hiring in my role as editor in chief of reason and it can be tough to find um, young people who combine the two quite rare traits of being, um, you know, really thoughtful on the ideological side about, um, you know, about priorities and policy and political philosophy and also find people with real journalism chops. You know, you can often kind of find one or the other, but getting the overlap in that Venn diagram is tricky and um, it was delightful yeah. to talk to so many people who did fit in that overlap. Well, good, good. I'm looking forward to seeing the projects that they produce. Uh, Reason has been a great uh, supplier of Novak Fellows. I think we've had five or six. Robbie Suave recently, Stephanie Slade, Peter Sunderman, Suderman rather, uh, you, I may be miss, uh, and Billy Binion now. So uh, I, great that you must encourage people to apply for it, I guess. Yeah, I just think it's a good way to help people focus at a moment in their career when having a beat is important. I mean, you know, I think sometimes young journalists get this advice too soon. Like you have to specialize. You have to know one thing and you have to be deeply knowledgeable about that one thing. That isn't the only path to success, but there is a point in your journalism career where you do want to be known if not as the expert, at least as the guy who's covering the thing, the person to talk to, the person the experts want access to. And I think that that's really what the Novak Fellowship has helped a lot of folks at Reason do. Yeah. And I know we've had a few others who've said they turned their projects into their careers. <laughs> Tim Carney being one who's done a lot throughout his career on his project of dealing with crony, crony corporatism. And we've certainly published him many yeah. times on that topic as well. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being a judge. I did want to get into uh, some people listening to this may not know a lot about libertarian ideas or libertarianism uh, and or about Reason Magazine. Reason covers certainly a wide range of subjects. Uh, you've always been on the cutting edge when it comes to both technology, even science fiction and uh, uh, the latest cutting edge uh, topics. Uh, as well as covering the more traditional issues that libertarians care about, the size of government and 
things like that. But you've done some really uh, interesting pieces yourself that uh, would be, I think, worth a conversation today. So I'll, I'll take one right off the bat that you've written about, and that is voting. Uh, yes. You wrote a very interesting piece uh, about whether someone should vote or not in elections. And you, you, took, you brought in all these studies uh, that have been done by people, academics and others, about uh, you know, whether a vote ever matters, to what extent it will matter to you, the voter. Uh, I've always kind of looked at voting, and you actually tackled this as kind of like being at a football game and deciding not to clap. Uh, your clap is not going to add to the decibel level overall, but it gives you satisfaction. But you even tackled the idea that you vote in order to be get because you get fun out of it. Yeah. Uh, what what kinds of reactions did you get to your piece? So I would say, you know, arguing that most people shouldn't vote most of the time is a great way to derail a dinner party. It's really something that people feel strongly about, almost in like a pre-rational way. Um, and, I, and I should say, this is not a core libertarian tenant, right? There are right. plenty of libertarians, in fact, who think um, voting and especially voting third party is a really important thing to do. Um, this is, however, core to my worldview, which is to say, you know, I think it's actually many of the critiques of voting that you see on, you know, bumper stickers or hear people kind of casually say are, are more pointed and wiser than they know. So when you see this joke of, you know, don't vote, it only encourages this, I've you know, that, that kind one, of thing. Yeah. Um, I actually think that's spot on. I mean, it, it is, you know, we are, we do not live in a, in a country where voting is mandatory. And there are plenty of occasions when I look at all of the candidates in a race and say, none of the above. I just don't want to give me. my positive yeah. endorsement uh, on the kind of personal and moral level to any of these characters. And- Luckily, nothing I do matters, particularly in national elections. Now, I say in the piece, you know, if you know for sure that you're going to be the deciding vote in an election, feel free to vote. That's fine. The research you showed said found a handful of elections in 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 the last hundred some years. Small number, and almost all of those you could quibble with, right? So there there are cases where you know when an election is that close, it'll often go to a runoff. It'll be subject to a court challenge. So even in those cases, you can't necessarily argue that one person voting a certain way would have tipped the outcome. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. I I will say I have many reason colleagues who, um, who share your view, who basically say I vote as an act of um, kind of cheering for the team as an act of civic solidarity. Um, And of course I think participating in politics is important. I'm a political journalist. It would be stupid for me to think otherwise. But I think the particular act of voting is overrated, and sometimes people do it in lieu of more meaningful engagement. Well, you, I thought your piece was very thorough. You covered almost all the arguments that I tried. put forward on that. So uh, another really hot topic right now is, is chat GPT. You've written, I remember a piece you wrote, maybe it was a few years ago, about robots. And uh, I think I think the subhead or the poll line from it was that robots were taking away your job in life as a, yes. as a wife and a mother of children. And, you know, they're doing all the work that is. And I'm happy for them to do job. that. Exactly. Sounds but. great. I'm, I was delighted to hand over vacuuming to a Roomba and never think about it again. Well, are you ready to turn over the editing and writing of reason to chat GPT? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, at this point, obviously, uh, chat GPT is still a fledgling technology in many ways. And, you know, I think many people have documented this really crucial problem that still exists, which is that um, 
ChatGPT seems to be too obliging to certain requests, and it will cheerfully give you untruths in a compelling, kind of believable way mm-hmm. um, that it's not actually strictly bound by things that are accurate. Um, accuracy is a key pillar of journalism. And so until we can sort that out, I think we still have a really important role for humans um, doing journalism. I also think that um, that there are a lot of things to be gained from from AI in the kind of day-to-day business of journalism, including, um, for instance, we have built uh, a robot, Catherine Mangue Ward, who can read articles, and she sounds like me. Oh, is that right? Um, in fact, I could be her right yeah. now. You don't even yeah. know. Uh, but yeah, you can feed. So you can listen to the reason articles online. Exactly. So we'll be rolling that out voice. soon. And that's an example of a real gain in efficiency. I'm not going to sit there and read all these articles, yeah. but if robot me wants to read them, great. And probably mispronounces a few things here. A couple there. things, but honestly, I'd yeah. mispronounce a few things too. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's true. True. I listen, actually listen to sometimes listen to the wall street journal in the morning uh, when I'm coming to work uh, through their auto, their audible app. And, uh, they do, you know, I, I, I always wonder why they can't somehow fix the mispronunciation. Yeah. Like today there were a story in the journal about the FISA court and they kept calling it the FISA court. Ugh. She just couldn't get it right. The lady who, the robot their lady. voice, the robot yeah. lady, but, uh, they're going to get better and tough. better though. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there are a whole bunch of other examples, including, um, automated transcription, um, you know, used to be that we'd have to have a, an army of interns to type out yeah. these interviews. Now you can do it very cheaply, very quickly. Um, video correction, a bunch of other things. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, in preparing for this conversation today, I did go back and listen to, uh, your Ted talk, a wonderful Ted talk, which I highly recommend everyone to go to Ted talk and listen to, uh, Catherine's, uh, short speech, 11 or 12 minutes on capitalism. And then you also did a debate with John Mackey on your side from uh, formerly the CEO and, and the founder of Whole Foods uh, debating the topic of uh, is capitalism a blessing? I'll have to tell you in that debate, which I also recommend to anyone wanting, especially to have young people listen to it. Uh, your opponents uh, who defended socialism never smiled. No. Never laughed. They were <laughs> Just very dour. Dour and, look on their face. And strictly speaking, they won that debate. So I'm not sure what they were strictly so grumpy speaking, about. You had the vast majority of the audience on your side. Um, but yes, we did. Oh. We debated um, some actual socialists. And, yeah. and I think that's one thing that's great about um, IQ Squared, who sponsored that debate. Um, they've rebranded. They're now called Open to Debate. And um, they really do try to get people who have genuine, deep disagreements instead yeah. of just kind of casual point scoring and, and gotchas. And, um, and it was a fun conversation because I do think a lot is at stake in that question in kind of defending capitalism in a moment when it's so unpopular. Well, this is a simplistic question and I don't mean it in that way, but you know, why is it that people in polls seem to not like capitalism, especially young people? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I, knew the kind of deep answer to that question. I think there are a bunch of there are a bunch of possibilities. One is when you ask people if they like capitalism, what they hear is something like, do you like your job and your house or your job and the prices at the grocery store or something like that? And, you know, they pay you to go to work for a reason. A lot of people don't like their jobs. Um, and I think people kind of associate the system of capitalism with these negative things. 
Um, whereas I would say, no, you should associate capitalism with almost everything that is good in your life, yeah. um, including just the kind of you know physical, you know, commercial abundance that we exist in. Um, but also a lot of the personal freedoms that we have, uh, you know, freedom of speech is is great as a legal principle, but it's really facilitated by all of the cheap mass media and, you know, personalized communication technologies yeah. that exist thanks to capitalism. So I think I think there's kind of a are you vaguely discontented with the present system that people uh, are responding to when they say they don't like capitalism? And of course, if you ask more detailed questions like you know, would you, are you planning to move to Venezuela? It's amazing how no one wants to do that, right? If you say, you know, well, would you like to see um, more restrictions on um, trade or, you know, much, much higher taxation? Or would you like the government to provide X, Y, and Z? People, you know, t- tend to quite quickly shift their position. So I, you know, I am worried about the brand of capitalism, but I do think that you can kind of overstate how important those polls are in terms yeah. of, our future, you know, economic system in this country. Well, that raises the question whether we should abandon that word capitalism because some of the polls, if they say free enterprise or maybe economic freedom, it'll fare much better. I hate to give it up. And even though it was coined, I guess, by Karl Marx, uh, I think it's hard to give up labels. Yeah. And then you get to the word socialism and that's, uh, actually, that reminds me of Russ Roberts, uh, the economist who runs EconTalk, uh, hosts EconTalk. He was speaking to our students, and he, I think just kind of offhandedly once said, uh, he was talking about how capitalism is very bottom-up and socialism is very top-down. In fact, we should, call, we should reverse the names because right. what we call capitalism is a very social system of people cooperating voluntarily, and capital is the head kind of dictating things down, but of course you can't switch labels that easily. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm not I, sure that the socialists would agree so to it. I admire that you decided just to say the blessings of capitalism and, and give your Ted talk on why I love or why I like capitalism. Yeah. I do think it's important to, uh, to kind of redeem that word rather yeah. than abandon it and move on. Um, I think this is also true of the word libertarianism, which certainly has its branding problems. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't really anything that um, is broadly understood to refer to that collection of ideas. And I think it would be wrong to abandon the word because it would be perceived in many cases correctly as abandoning some of the underlying principles that are really important. Um, And of course, you know, the capital and capitalism might be head or it might be literally an accumulation of, of capital of, of, you know, uh, investment capital say, um, but I also think most of the alternatives aren't very good. I mean, I love, love, love the work of Deidre McCloskey, for example. Um, but she suggests that we use the term exchange tested mutual betterment or something. Oh, I haven't heard that. And like, that's right. That's true. That's, <laughs> that's a better description. Yeah. I don't know that it's going to catch up. <laughs> well, in, in your uh, Intelligence Squared debate, uh, you talked about the double thank you moment. Uh, when you buy a cup of coffee and you say thank you and the person selling you the coffee says thank you and... Uh, you know, it's, it's, how do you capture that? I'm not sure Deirdre's got it with that expression. Yeah. But certainly her Uh, work captures the magic of that moment and the virtues that have to be present in a society to make that moment possible, right? You, you don't get a double thank you when it's clear to everyone, which side really holds the power in the relationship. It has to be a condition of kind of genuine equality in the market, which 
I think, you know, modern Americans often enjoy. And, and we run into problems with the labels liberal and conservative right. and classical liberal. And yes. now I read in reason, uh, right liberal is now a term that's being used to disparage, I guess, libertarians. Yeah. Or, let's talk about the word libertarian or, or not the word, but the, the philosophy. Uh, a few years back, uh, it was, you know, there was talk of the libertarian moment. Uh, I, to hear some conservatives, new right conservatives today speak, they would they seem to think libertarians have been running the show for too long and it's time to change. But what is the state of kind of ideas of liberty or liberty loving ideas? Uh, is, is reason finding new audiences for them? Are young people, you know, coming to your website to read it? So I think COVID was a really interesting moment for kind of libertarianism as a brand or as a kind of cluster of ideas, because there were a lot of people who previously might have identified in other ways, who who the lesson was brought home very personally and very directly how much control government has over their lives. And they kind of went looking around like, who's objecting to this? And, um, and so I think there was a group of people who kind of found um, elements of libertarianism, particularly school choice, um, resistance to kind of the public health establishment, a bunch of other things like that um, in this COVID moment. So I think... If you want to be optimistic, you could say, I don't think we've fully seen how that is going to play out in our politics yet. I mean, I think in some ways the candidacy of Ron DeSantis reflects an, you know, an interest in and public approval for how he ran things in Florida in comparison to some of the rest of the country. During COVID, yeah. During, now, yeah. I do not think Ron DeSantis is a libertarian, to be very clear. But, um, but I do think that you know, that kind of stance um, is appealing to people. It is not the libertarian moment. Um, you know, as my colleague, Stephanie Slade, former Novak fellow has written very, very eloquently. There is, there has been kind of a, a convergence of um, on both the left and the right um, in which they are abandoning liberal principles in the classical liberal sense of pluralism and toleration and limited intervention by the state. And um, instead pursuing a kind of winner takes all if you seize power you get to set the rules um, type agenda and that is about as far from libertarianism as you can get yeah the, the idea that you know we'll seize power we'll use government to advance and we're going to use objectives. it for good we yeah, promise for yeah, good yeah sure but what happens when the other guys take over yeah yeah uh in the uh is it the intelligence squared debate uh you you took on the role of kind of giving the moral case for capitalism uh some people might reject libertarianism for feeling it's more libertinism mm -hmm. that, that the, the moral arguments aren't there or, or it lacks the attention to the idea of virtues to be pursued as a free person uh you know do you think we need to be more uh effective at making the moral case for people being free if we hope to maintain a free society in this country so I, I do think that the moral case is so crucial to the case for libertarianism, both um, from the very, very basic point of view that, you know, virtue not freely chosen isn't virtue. Um, that's, I think, at the simplest level. You know, if you want a virtuous society, liberty is a precondition and there's simply no negotiating around that. Um, if you force people to do a good thing, they didn't do a good thing. They did. They were just scared. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the first layer. Um, I, I also think that, um, 
for people of many political stripes, including many people on the left, um, those who value consent can see um, that moral value in capitalism, right? You don't, um, you know, if, if a transaction is not one that is mutually agreeable, you don't enter into it. Um, at least that's the theory. And, um, and so I think if that's, if that's one of your guiding moral principles, like capitalism has something to offer you there. Um, I do think, uh, you know, I am, I am ultimately somewhere a little more on the libertine end, I think of the spectrum than you, Roger. And, uh, and I think that does bring a lot of people to libertarianism. So there's this tricky balance, which is, you know, we want to say, uh, as a movement and as a magazine, Hey, do you want to do something that society isn't so sure you should be allowed to do? Let's really interrogate whether that's anybody else's business and especially whether that's the state's business. Um, and so I think that, you know, historically, a lot of uh, the causes that have brought people to, liber- uh, to libertarianism, such as ending the draft, gay marriage, you know, ending the war on drugs. Um, these are all things that can and should be cast as limits on state power, but they are also opportunities to live in the way you want to live. Mm-hmm. So if that's mm-hmm. libertinism, then I well. guess sign me up. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I commented to you recently that, you know, in the, uh, not in this same words, but the constitution I think has like 18 or 19 functions that it gives to the Congress in article one, section eight. And uh, it's gone way beyond those functions, of course, but even in those limited functions that was given in the constitution, it it does very poorly in them all, perhaps because it's gone so far beyond them. Uh, But we might all agree that it's important to have a, a limited government that provides a justice system and policing at some level, national defense, let's say at the, at the federal level, uh, policing preferably at the local level. Uh, but it, it, it seems that you can't limit it. I mean, that's our history has been not entirely. You've cited some areas where we've seen expansion of liberties, uh, obviously the ending of slavery, the, uh, legalization of, uh, gay marriage, uh, more rights for women, uh, legitimate rights that they were denied, including the right to vote. But at the same time, government just keeps growing all the time. And, you know, what, what prevents someone, what gives someone confidence, I guess, that you can limit government in a way that you even want to have a government? I mean, and not be an anarchist, which I'm sure you have readers who are anarchists and. I, I think that anarchists colleagues, belong in the libertarian coalition yeah. for this very reason, that it actually really is quite hard once you get down to it to articulate um, you know, what, what is the principle that makes any, any state power moral, but not this state, not that yeah. one, not the one I don't like. Or even if you find it, how do you keep it limited? And, how do, you, and how do you constrain it yeah. unless you abolish it? And you know, I think there are, of course, yeah. arguments also that – even if you abolish state power, you know, anarchic systems have a habit of collapsing back into state systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that being said, we are very, very clearly in a trend where we are nationalizing all manner of political concerns, right? We are not mm-hmm. in a devolutionary period. We are, we are making drag queen story hour in San Francisco, the business of the president of the United States. And that trend is not going to abate. Um, so we, we are very much in a political moment where um, any kind of respect for what Congress can and cannot do or what the executive should or should not do, I really 
unfortunately just don't see that centered in our political conversation at all. That's one thing reason tries to do is just, you know, day after day, year after year, remind people, hey, did you know to declare war? Congress should probably be in on that one. We try, but <laughs> rarely yeah. anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, I give credit to James Madison for probably doing the best you could do in drafting a constitution limit government uh, with by setting up this system of checks and balances where you'd hopefully have three branches that were checking each other. You'd have local and state government trying to check the federal government. And it worked reasonably well for, you know, a few centuries uh, yeah. longer and, than most. And, you know, I, I think so. it's still working reasonably well. I mean, I, I struggle with how optimistic or pessimistic to be, but I, I do think in comparison to, you know, almost any other nation that we would look to as a potential model, we're still doing pretty well. Um, and I, I think it can be easy to give into despair um, and that and that we shouldn't because I agree. at the very least, even though government is growing at a really inappropriate rate, the market is growing faster still. Um, like the world outside of government is getting bigger and weirder and more interesting and, uh, you know, enabling more exciting innovation despite the effort of the government. Um and as long as that balance remains in place, we're going to be okay. I do think that that balance is under threat. Um, and that's why I think what, you know, what TFAS does and what Reason does is so important because it is kind of reminding people that we should put guardrails. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is uh, probably the best time ever to be alive, given everything we have available to us. Uh, at the you know flick of a switch, we have our electricity, we have Tylenol when we have a headache, we have so many uh, great achievements and life expectancies long. Uh, and there's probably no other be better place to be living than in yeah. the United States. We hardly ever have to go to the post office anymore. That's true. That's, you know, what more can we ask? Uh, except I'm a, I'm a big fan of the post office because I serve on the uh, I know. postal service I know. stamp well, committee. Well, they still have very nice stamps, but we don't have to go yeah, wait no, in line. Not enough people are using them, but yeah. post offices have improved their service some. Because <laughs> there's competition. It's UPS. It's, it has UPS stores everywhere. And I think that's right, FedEx. actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll see the same thing in the uh, education sector and a bunch of other places. seen a lot there. Are we at a tipping point when it comes to things like school choice and... I think we are. Uh, it's I, spreading. Yeah. I actually think that that is a place where um, incremental policy change has reached, um, has kind of reached an inflection point. Um, you know, people have been talking about charter schools and vouchers and school choice for decades. And it has been a tough battle because it's really hard to compete with free. Um, and of course, public schools aren't free, but they're perceived as free. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, again, the combination of COVID and just in general, the extremely low quality of public education in this country and an increasing awareness of that, um, plus some very clever policy innovators who have worked to push um, education savings accounts, you know, money follows the child, that kind of thing that have just, just slightly created a different slate of incentives uh, for people who want to people want to try something different for their kids. Yeah, well, there seems to be a, a boom as well in, in the creation of private schools around the country uh, of all kinds. Uh, yeah, it's it's encouraging. You know, I think I, I recall when I was in arguments in the distant past where people couldn't imagine education being provided other than by a public school. Right. You know, and, and it's it, crazy, it's right? Like, because people have always had school choice, yeah. both in the form of 
moving to the neighborhood where you want to get your kid into the, you know, the good school um, and private schools, which have always been a part of the American education economy. Um, You know, there's this astonishing pattern that the members of Congress, governors, members of state legislatures, so many of them send their children to private schools. And you have to say, why, why should you have this opportunity and your constituents who have fewer connections and fewer resources don't? I just think it's a very clear argument. You know, it really puts people on notice for hypocrisy. It can be transpartisan and, um, and it's making headway. So, yeah, no, I used to, I used to argue that, you know, we value education as highly, almost as highly as re- we value religion in this country and at least 30 years ago and, and there are churches on every corner right? and there'll be schools everywhere for anyone who wants to go. Ironically, uh, like fast food restaurants everywhere due but, to incredibly complicated zoning requirements. <laughs> the only place you can put a private school is in a church yeah. <laughs> uh, because they have a zoning exemption. And this is a great example of how, you know, to my mind, so many kind of libertarian hobby horses or pet issues um, wind up, connecting to each other, right? If we, if we didn't have such ridiculously overcomplicated land use policies and traffic regulations, it would be easier to open schools. That's one of the major barriers, especially in cities to opening a school. Um, so it all kind of comes together. You know, you have to give people choice in so many areas of their lives for them to really be innovative. Well, that's a very much an unseen problem, right? That people don't recognize the impact of government policies on what exists today. They attribute it to the market. Yeah. If, if something's not being provided, if they can't get something, they don't understand land use policies. A great idea of the cost of housing, you know, the impact of government on, on the cost of a right. Student a loans are another example yeah. where people somehow perceive this to be a market phenomenon when it's very clearly a government mm-hmm. phenomenon. Um, and I think that there's, you know, there is kind of this, um, as you say, there's the seen and the unseen, but there's also just, you know, I used to always wonder why isn't everyone a libertarian because everyone's a libertarian about their own thing, right? So you get a a ticket because you haven't mowed your grass. Suddenly you're like, well, that law is unjust. You know, you get uh, patted down by the TSA in a particularly aggressive way and you're like, hey, why does the TSA even exist? And when people come in direct contact with the state, they so often have this aha moment. Why is this thing being done by government and so badly? But they don't globalize that. They don't kind of extrapolate it to, oh, maybe this is true everywhere. Maybe this is true always. Um, And I think part of our job is to kind of communicate that that phenomenon is everywhere and always when it comes to kind of bureaucratic and and security and other procedures. Well, perhaps. I mean, I'm thinking of all the times people unfortunately might say, oh, I deserve that. <laughs> I deserve that ticket. I should have cut my lawn earlier or. Maybe. I you know, think people I usually was, don't say I that about have. the lawn. They usually <laughs> say it about, you know, really serious crime, for yeah. instance. Right. I, I think it, there's broad based agreement that if somebody robs your house, they should go to jail. Um, and I think libertarians mostly would say, yeah, we agree on that one. But then yeah. what about all these other crimes that we don't agree on? Maybe we should step back from those. Now, uh, to talk more about Reason, and uh, it's more than a magazine, uh, you have a website that pr- puts excellent things up. Uh, tell me about that. A little, talk a little bit about the Reason website and as a resource for 
Sure. Do is reading commentary. So Reason, um, we're about 55 years old now. And um, for many years, we were just a print magazine, a monthly print magazine, and we still are. But um, Reason was quite early to the internet. You can find, if you if you go look in the Wayback Machine, you can see these, these I won't say that they were the pinnacle of graphic design, but... <sighs> Um, you were there, but they were there, and that was that was meaningful. We also were very early to to online video, um, and so we have a huge video video project. Um, you know, Reason TV is our YouTube channel. Um, it started out actually with support from Drew Carey of oh, Prices sure. Right fame, uh, who's uh, who's you know did a series with us to kick that off. Um, and we are also you know increasingly just looking for ways to be. Um, where people actually are. So that's Instagram, it's TikTok, um, Facebook, of course. And, um, you know, part of the reason that we are on so many platforms and that we look to be so many places is because we're a mission-driven 501c3. So our goal isn't exclusively, you know, drive subscriptions or, you know, get the maximum number of clicks. It's reach people with our ideas. And sometimes that means you've got to, you got to do them in a bunch of different forms and see what sticks. So um, reason.com is the core of our production that, you know, the vast majority of what we produce goes there. Um, but, you know, increasingly you can see those headlines and snippets and video clips and all kinds of other things, all you know, many other places. And the reason round table, uh, is that fairly new? Um, so we've been doing that for a while now. Um, but podcasting, of course, uh, along with newsletters is this, this, additional category that's really been booming lately. Um, Substack is the home for many of those. We do not use Substack, but um, the reason that those are attractive is partially because it's much, much harder to throttle those two forms, right? So um, Facebook can decide and has decided that it doesn't want to carry your content and there's nothing you can do about it really. Um, And they're a private company. They should be allowed to do what they want. It's hard to get answers as to why they aren't carrying it. I think, you know, one answer that we collectively got with the Twitter files and with some of Reason's reporting on Facebook as well is that uh, there is more government interference in that market than you might guess. Um, Pressure from the CDC and others to restrict information. But um, podcasts are available, this podcast, I am sure, on many, many platforms. And um, there isn't a single arbiter of who, um, you know, uh, who gets to consume what podcast and the same is true of newsletters. So we have the reason Roundtable, we have the inter- reason interview. Um, we've host the Soho forum debates on our podcast feed um, and many, many other things that we are um, just always experimenting with because we recognize that that's a, a really direct line to our consumers. And it, does reason foundation do more beyond that with like policy work? Or? Right. So um, the reason reason magazine is published by yeah. the reason foundation, um, it's based in LA and um, there's a whole other arm that does um, mostly state based, um, although increasingly at the national level as well. Um, as you say, policy research, um, they, uh, for instance, do a lot of work on public sector pensions, on uh, marijuana legalization at the state level um, and just many, many other issues. Transportation policy is a big one um, because there are places where libertarians have made inroads and being genuinely influential in public policy and reasons goal is to kind of provide expertise and counsel and research to friendly and helpful legislators who might want to try and make a difference in their state. Yeah. Well, I, I've known uh, Bob Poole for many years, former editor 
And uh, he's always done great work on transportation issues. He's and still I've our seen, director I of transportation see, all these years later. I, yeah, and he said ideas for decades that you know slowly get adopted by government to help move traffic faster or whatever. It's it's amazing how sometimes it takes so long. But I remember I think he first proposed the idea, simple idea that. I don't know. They have at least in Chicago. I don't know why they do it more places of reversible commuter lanes right. in cities where traffic generally flows one way in the morning, one way in the evening. Why not have lanes that are reversible? You know, and and this is a great just, example of what happens when you deprive people, decision makers, of price signals. Yeah. Right. If there were prices anywhere in the system, and now there are with toll lanes, um, you would immediately get the feedback. Hey, the lanes going east at rush hour in the morning aren't valuable. We need more lanes going West and vice versa. And that's a solvable problem, yeah. which nobody had the right incentives to solve until Bob figured out how to bring some pricing into it. Yeah. Cause the cost was borne by commuters sitting in their cars. Right. Not by Who the cares about those guys? <laughs> well, in your, in your, uh, uh, Ted talk, you, you use the phrase that the term, uh, capitalism is an emergent system. And I think you're touching on that now that it's not a design system that prices convey information, uh, Say something about this idea of emergent systems. Yeah, I really think that's a, a central idea, like a really, really important idea that people undervalue because they do, again, identify capitalism often with kind of employment. So they think, well, like under capitalism, I have a boss and that boss is mean to me. Um, and of course, everyone has a boss in every system. It's a question of, you know, what the balance of power is between you and your boss um, and uh and so when we talk about emergent systems, what we're talking about is are systems where if someone has a good idea and they can figure out how to convince other people that it's a good idea, that idea really has a chance to grow and thrive. Um, and that is quite different than a system where you have to convince just one guy who's in charge or a very small handful of guys who are in charge that your idea is good those guys aren't going to really know which ideas are good. And even if they happen to get it right, the implementation is probably going to get screwed up and then it'll just be funded more and more into the rest of eternity. Um, it's just such a crucial difference between capitalism and top-down systems. And, um, you know, this is the idea of the, the gale of creative destruction, right? Yeah, you know that capitalism data. is working when companies fail. Um, and that is... I think sometimes people see a big company collapse and they say, oh, it's late stage capitalism. We're doomed. Nope. That's exactly right. We want to see that. Well, you, you related the statistic that I've uh, followed at times in the past. I, I learned from a great uh, free market economist, Ben Rogge, uh, who gave this great speech uh, many times. I've sat in it on uh, Monopoly. And, and he used statistic that you used in your TED talk about the fact that I think 90% of the Fortune 500 companies from 1955, when they put out the first list of Fortune 500, don't exist today. They've either gone out of business, they've merged into other companies. And I tell my conservative friends who are worried about Facebook and Google, you know, I'd put money on the fact that 10 years from now, they'll be a shadow of what they are today. Or maybe it's going to be 20 years. Uh, I, I think you're probably safe to bet today. 10, honestly. Yeah, we can't imagine it today. Google not being, you know, the dominant force and... Uh, search engines and things, but uh, new but technologies come along. and It is an odd kind of... Um, you said Facebook's shrinking already. Right. It's an odd kind of ahistorical view because, of, of course, we all know that the companies, that the brands that once dominated our lives, you know, we maybe we haven't thought about them in a while. Maybe they don't anymore. Um, and that's true in so many areas, right? Yeah. It's true in terms of, your, you know, your 
car, your transportation. It's true in terms of the media that you consume. It's true um, in terms of the like housewares and gadgets that you buy. There's just a lot of churn in a capitalist economy or a, at least a somewhat free market economy like our own. Um, and that's, that's what's inevitable. Like yeah. none of these companies are going to be around forever. You know, death, death is inevitable. And, uh, and, and thank God. Well, say something. I know we're getting up on our time limit here, but say something about weirdos and <laughs> the right. role of weirdos. So this is, I will say, I, you know, I gave the Ted talk it, and it had a, a kind of theme in it about how, um, the people who power some of this innovation and also this very important failure tend to be weird. They're weird people. Um, and uh, of course Steve I Jobs. had Elon Musk in mind, Steve, Steve Jobs, Jobs, some yeah. others. Um, Musk was at the Ted talk. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and this was right when he was buying Twitter. So I, I will say I'm, I am and sort of remain a Musk fan. I do wish he would, maybe focus on rockets and electric cars and not so much on social media. But um, I think, you know, that is, it really is true that people who have unusual and, you know, ideas that are perceived as dangerous in other systems, they get beaten down, they get shut down. They sometimes get actually killed or imprisoned, right? Which we see in China all of the time. Um, And not just business people, but artists and writers and creative people. Creative yeah, types in, in as all, well. All ways. Um, and I think one of the one of the you know, there are many people who would say, Well, I want to make space in society for people who are different, right? And that's a that's a real important tenet on the left, that we wanna be welcoming and open to people who are who are, you know, in some way differ from the mainstream. I just think capitalism is the way to do that. And, you know, to say we're going to rely on government to beneficently make space for people who challenge the status quo, like we've seen how that goes. And that is not generally how governments roll. Yeah. And so it brings you, raises the question of why creative people so often are not supporters of capitalism or libertarian ideas. Right. Well, or, I think- or, and maybe they are supporters of libertarian ideas, even if they don't use that label. Like you said, they want freedom for themselves. Milton Friedman pointed this out, you know, businessmen want freedom for everyone else, but not, they want protection for themselves right. <laughs> and artists are the opposite or the academics. That's, that's exactly right. Um, and I think at least part of that answer is um, that we don't do a good job of educating people about economics in this country. And no. that's one thing that TFAS does that I think is really important. Just some very, very basic economic literacy would go a long way, I think, toward giving people a grounding for why a capitalist system is going to be more hospitable to artists or is going to be, you know, a place where people with unusual ideas can flourish. We'll say something uh, before we close to young people who might be listening and uh, that you could encourage them to think about a career in journalism, you know, because it it looks like journalism has been changing so much and that will the jobs be there and what is the job of a journalist today? But what would you say to encourage young people to consider that career? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, thinking back to where we started in this conversation, I had this idea as a young person that wanting to be a journalist was functionally the same thing as wanting to be like an, a star in the NBA or, you know, a, a rocket scientist or something that it was just something that was only open to, people who were so anomal- anomalously successful and talented that I couldn't even think about it, right? It was a, a 
you know, a product of luck and talent beyond my reach. Uh, that's not true. Journalism is is a, um, in many ways, it's a profession, just like any other, that rewards certain virtues, including being thorough and thoughtful, including being conscientious, including um, making promises and then keeping them. And if you are, um, you know, if you feel like you have those attributes and you were thinking about applying them, say, to being a lawyer or a consultant, you know, journalism is a lot more fun. And it also might be, you know, a, a rewarding career in a way that um, that some of these other more conventional professions aren't. Um, I will say the other advice I used to always give young journalists was that um, ramen noodles are better if you put an egg in them. <laughs> it doesn't, journalism continues to not pay well. And so I do think that should be, um, you know, you should sort of put that on the label. Um, but it's it's rewarding in so many other ways. And I think if you see yourself as a person who cares about ideas yeah. or if you just like talking to interesting people, journalism is a good gig. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you got back to what you started uh, when you said you were at Yale and it was fun. You got that fun in there again. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's a fun job. I, I imagine there were moments even at, at working for an alternative paper at Yale where there were moments where it was not as fun because the pressure of the environment there that might have been – yeah, I hostile think, to what you were doing. I think or, even when you're in the minority or yeah. even when you're in a crunch time, that that really can be fun. And, mm. and I think, you know, you see that spirit in a negative way in the kind of trollishness of some of our politics, yeah. you know, the idea of kind of picking fights just for the sake of infuriating the other side. Yeah. But I think, you know, there is a kind of joy in the good fight and in, you know, maybe making people a little bit angry, but also opening up their minds to different and new ideas. Um, and certainly my experience as a, as a collegiate journalist and also as the editor of reason is that, you know, sometimes you're just like, I'm going to put pickleball on the cover, which is our next issue um, and use it to make a point about government subsidy and regulation because it's okay to have fun with it. Oh, well, I'll have to read that. I'm, I'm not into pickleball, but you boy, will be after have, you read have, this there article. There are courts behind my house that are occupied 24 seven now with people <laughs> playing pickleball. So is it a libertarian sport or an unlibertarian sport to play? Uh, well, uh, you know, our argument <laughs> is that uh, the minute that it became popular, of course, the government both wanted to ban it and subsidize it. Right. <laughs> this is the nature of politics in 2023. Pickleball is no exception. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you. Uh, uh, we, it was a little roundabout. I take the blame for that. I was uh, taking us in some circles there, but I think we covered a lot, and it was very enjoyable. Thank you, my guest, Catherine Mangu Ward, past Novak Fellow and a recipient of our, I should say, of our, our 2021 Ken Tomlinson Award, which we have subsequently renamed, though it could have been called that when we gave it to you. It's the Ken Tomlinson Award for Courage in Journalism, uh, and you are certainly courageous in what you do. And last year we gave it to Jimmy Lai, of course, who's sitting in a a jail cell in Hong Kong. And uh, we'll be giving it this year to Benjamin Hall, who uh, at great sacrifice uh, lost a limb and suffered a lot of personal injuries uh, covering the war in Ukraine, as a good journalist does. So that'll be November 14th. Thank you, Catherine. Pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email 
at podcast at tfas.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Reem, and until next time, show courage in things large and small.